Hi, friends. You're listening to Midlife Plot Twists. I'm your host, Lucy Baber. This podcast is for anyone who's gotten to their 30s, 40s, or 50s and realized life isn't always as linear as we expected. Tune in monthly as I interview guests about their own midlife plot twists and hear how they've navigated all of life's unexpected twists and turns. Hi, everyone. It's Lucy Baber here. And I am here about to interview a friend of mine. Her name is Ariana Hero Miliotis. And I am getting so good at pronouncing that last name. Yes, you are. Um, Ariana and I have been friends for a while. We met because she grew up on the same block that I bought my house. And therefore, because she, whenever she would come uh, back to her childhood home, I also knew her through her mom because her mom still lived on my block. But today I want to introduce you to Ariana because Ariana has a really interesting, engaging story to tell about her experiences over the past couple of years, um, caring for a parent who was aging and dealing with some medical issues. And so before I kind of dive into that, I'm going to give you a chance, Ariana, to introduce yourself, tell us um, how old you are, what you do for a living, and then you can tell us a little bit about why we're here today. Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Ariana Niramiliotis. I'm 41. I um, grew up in Philadelphia. I'm a sign language interpreter. And I had the opportunity to take care of my mom until she died. Uh, she died about seven months ago. Um, I was her primary caregiver. I was the mover, the shaker, getting an advocate. I was her friend, you know, still her friend. She's still here in spirit. Um, and uh, I it was an immense job. It was an undertaking that I'd never seen coming or the depth or the layered effect of what caregiving means um, and it really fueled my purpose even further to just educate people about the, the aging generation and what that looks like. So I started um, sort of a care page on Instagram called at Just Beyond Boundaries, where me and caregivers from across the world sort of just work together, you know, either through Instagram sharing our stories or, you know, sometimes we like, you know, we all kind of engage and do podcasts. Um, here and there, but just a place, safe space where people can talk about their experiences. Um, and we have, you know, I've kind of grown my page organically. And I was so happy that Lucy reached out to me after seeing her in the community. And just, this is something that's been on my heart for a while. And I'm happy to be able to share it. Awesome. Um, so let's back up a second. Can you, before we dive into, you know, like what the past couple of years have looked like, I feel like this would be a really good space if you're open to it to kind of make space for your mom. Cause she was a force to be reckoned with. And I feel like she would be uh, shaking her finger at us if we didn't introduce her properly as well. So can you tell me a little bit about your mom, um, the kind of person that she was when she was still active and living independently, and also what things started to look like that made you start to realize, like, I need to step in and she needs to be a little bit less independent. Um, also, how old was your mom when this all started happening? Sure. So my mom's name uh, is Aurora 
near Miliotis. She was 77 or 76 when she passed away. She just had her 77th birthday. She she was a force. You were absolutely right. And I think something that I really took away from our conversation as an advocate, um, she she too was an advocate in so many ways. You know, she lived on Devon Street from 1985 until 2021. <laughs> and she created a home for me, a home for many people who passed through. She create she was she was a neighbor that, you know, for a long time had all the things. She probably still had all the things. And I was just like, don't give people things. Um, <laughs> and she was somebody who, you know, if you were new to the street or you were new to the community, she just wanted to make sure you felt welcome and whatever that meant to her. My mom worked at Pennsylvania School for the Deaf for 14 and a half years. Prior to that, she had done a lot of similar kind of work. She also grew up in Philadelphia. She was uh, a political uh, pioneer for a woman in the 70s, 60s and 70s in Philadelphia when women were not allowed to work in kind of like the, in the voting ballot places, you know, they weren't, she wasn't allowed to be like, not the judge of elections, but she wasn't allowed to like even be a committee person. Um, And she did that because she was like, hey, I know how to do this. It's not rocket science. And I just want to make sure that we're, you know, that people are getting the right information. She was somebody who loved sharing stories and loved telling stories. Um, And so you know, there is something to be said for intergenerational community and intergenerational living. And I think she instilled that in me because I had the chance to live with my grandparents when she was caregiving for them. So this sort of lineage of caregivers is not too far off. But yeah, my mom was everything to a lot of people. And she embodied that spirit. Um, I started noticing her decline fully probably right after she retired little things she retired in 2012 but the thing about the medical community and if anyone's gone to a doctor (laughs) you know (laughs) that they don't like to talk about the things that are really really like big words like dementia like alzheimer's they don't want to talk about memory loss because that actually makes them more kind of responsible to have caught it and noticed it You have to do a lot of digging before you even get to that diagnosis. Um, I started taking an active role in her medical care in, I mean, I've always, my mom was always sick to, to be very fair. She had, she's a breast cancer survivor. She survived breast cancer three times. She was a diabetic late onset in life. She got breast cancer when I was a baby, which, you know, kind of snowballed her into menopause right away. So she was in her forties when she had her menopause, her, you know, the first stages of menopause. And she was always kind of like, I need an extra assist. And I was always willing because like, that was just part of my childhood. You know, we always took care of each other. It didn't matter. Um, My grandparents helped her with me. She helped them. My uncles helped everybody. And so we all sort of just like, it was a community. We, we allowed that to happen. So I don't think I noticed that it was a real problem, uh, probably until like 2017. when I was like, things aren't what they could be. Um, and of course, like people would reach out and say like, Hey, is your mom? Okay. And I'd be like, 
yeah, I think so. You know, like no big, no big things. And I would ask her, you know, like, Hey, when you go to the doctor, like mention this. And I remember one time a very revered oncologist in the Philadelphia area was like, Aurora, everyone gets old. Sometimes you forget. And I was like, that's not it. Uh, I know that there's more to that. And I just knew, you just know when things are not right. So of course the like 10 warning signs for dementia is like misplacing keys. And I was like, is it me? Do I also have dementia? Like I misplace my keys pretty regularly. (laughs) No, (laughs) I do not. (laughs) Okay. But the warning signs for these sort of like overarching problems are very generic. And really you don't start to see change until it's like right here. In 2019, I had the opportunity to travel outside of the country twice. And while I've always traveled, I knew that would likely be my last time traveling without thinking, obviously I did not know that there was a pandemic coming, but I just remember feeling nervous the entire time. Like something's not right, something's not right. I have to like, and I would call her, you know, we created a schedule. It was like every day at nine o'clock, no matter where I was in the world, I would call my mom at nine o'clock every day. And it was like, I felt a little like rain man. Like (laughs) I was like, good morning. (laughs) But establishing that schedule, establishing that pattern gave me the independence to still live by myself away from her, but also give her autonomy and independence of how she spent her mornings. My mom walked a mile every morning. She went grocery shopping with her friend. She went to the mall. She went to Chestnut Hill. You know, she like did all of the things that every retired person would do. And it just wasn't until, you know, little accidents would kind of happen and they would sort of escalate into a bigger accident or something that was like very evident. Bill paying, all these like little things would sort of, oh, I think I did that. You think? (laughs) Comes every month. So I wasn't until really not 2019 that the bigger picture started to come into place. And then some people would say, oh, well, I thought your mom was like a little off. And I was like, you want to tell me earlier? That would have been a little helpful, you know, like, and I think the conversation that needs, that always has needed to happen with these sort of situations is, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable. Let's talk about it anyway. In 2016, I assumed power of attorney and some other things just to like, and, you know, it was all on her bank account. So I could start doing all the, the bigger things because I noticed that it was just much easier for me to do it and pay bills and stay on top of these things than trying to like make her do all those little things and stress her out even further. Because why are we going to stress out somebody who's already, whose brain is obviously atrophying because of a lifelong history of medical problems? Mm -hmm. There's no reason. Um, I shared it with my family. I let some of them know, even though she's, you know, a woman of 1950 and didn't want anybody to know, but I shared, I shared that with them. And I was like, listen, here's what's going on. Whether they agreed with me or not, doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, So it was, it was a long, long road to get to the final stages as many times it is. And it wasn't until the pandemic where I felt like 
I could do this. I could take care of my mom. I could stop my life, move on home and take care of her because it was just me and her. That was it. You know, I'm an only child. I've got no siblings. My dad lives in New Jersey and it was, it was a doable task. I wasn't going anywhere. I was working, you know, from zoom and it wasn't, it wasn't necessary for me to go any place. So oftentimes I would just like camp out, hang out there, but there are nights and I knew, you know, there were days where she was just like so confused about like what was going on. A lot of it stemmed a lot of the, the sick, the cyclical talking would be like around holidays confusion about like, how come I don't need to make a thousand cookies for people? Well, no one's going to Christmas parties. (laughs) Please (laughs) stop making cookies. (laughs) Um, Or like, are we doing our Christmas show this year? No, (laughs) no one's doing anything this year. So there was a lot of confusion. And the more you learn about dementia, the more you realize how much your loved one is actually was actually just in a world of their own. And I think that that helps take a step back, realign your purpose, and then continue to move forward with the best possible route of care. Um, luckily, sort of for us, she had a uh, heart attack in March, February, end of February, March of 2021. And I just remembered saying like, you can't go out this way, sis. <laughs> you had breast cancer. You have all these other things against you. <laughs> this isn't it. <laughs> and it was not. She came through that situation, but all of the vascular dementia that had been like clearly in our faces came full force. Wow. And it was, a, you know, she always remembered me and her family, which is like, bless but there was just like gaps of time where she doesn't, she doesn't, she did not recall. And I think that sort of stemmed from just like where the damage was in her heart that related to the lack of oxygen going to her brain Uh, and vascular dementia is sneaky like that. You know, some days enough oxygen could make you lucid and other days you're out the window. So all of that sort of came to head and I had to make quick decisions like quick. (laughs) I had three weeks to figure out someone's life. And I just thought me (laughs) now, like this is what I have to do. And it was the scariest and most beautiful thing I could have guaranteed her, you know, extra time on this earth was to put her in a nursing home. It was not easy but I had to do it, you know, like she's, I didn't want, I knew that if I brought her home, her life expectancy would be shorter because one, I'm not a medical professional. And two, like, how could I give her a social life, give her activities, give her everything she needed independently without any help? Like, physical help. I had nobody around and it made sense for us to find a place that she felt comfortable in. And you got to fight. You got to fight for those places because they will put you in anywhere. They're like, 
oh yeah, your mom's getting discharged. I'm like, from where and to where? And they're like, oh yeah, we found this place. I'm like, you will absolutely not send my mom there. No, thank you. <laughs> um, and you have to have a list of places that you want her, your loved one to be because the medical system, the hospital system will send you to wherever. And that's not what you want. Yeah, I, um, I mean, my parents are not in the same space, but I watched my mom go through this with her, both of her parents too. And I, um, I think the thing that struck me the most, and, and also in your story is that like, I don't know, I feel like I've gone through so much of my life, just assuming that there was going to be somebody to like step in some social worker or caseworker or something to like step in and like hold your hand through these new processes. And instead you really are just making it up as you go. And like, hopefully, you know, the, um, there's like, now we have Google and like the internet to like reach out to people. But, uh, even then, you know, it still only takes you so far before you just are faced with like a list of phone numbers because nobody's on the internet in these spaces yet. And you literally just have to go through the list and call and hope that you're making the right decision. You don't always have time to make like visits in person. You don't always have time to hear other reviews. And um, it's, it's a needlessly difficult process from what I can tell. Um, so like, how, how did you do this? Like, where, where did you start? Uh, I started with Google. Like you just said, I was like, we're not sending her to like a chop shop rehab. We're getting her top quality rehab. And it was COVID. So you're right. I couldn't visit. I couldn't visit her. I got to see her in the hospital before she went to the rehab, but she was in rehab for three weeks. And the thing about Medicare is you have 21 days and they hold you for 21 days. And you're still like, okay. <laughs> where is she going in 21 days? And they're like, no worries. You have plenty of time. And I'm like, for whom, whom do I have plenty of time for? The cardiologist at the hospital where she was, was like, she's fine. She can go home. And I said, to whose house is she going to? Is she coming home with you? Cause clearly this woman is not fine. <laughs> and I just remember being like, I can't, who can do this? Who can take care of this person? Because what you've given me back is not my mom, you know, and listen, hardest job I've ever had would do it again tomorrow. Like without, without blinking would do it again. You just have to keep an organized list of all the things that your loved one is going through. You have to remember big medical terms. You have to remember doctor's names, what things mean. And it's really just a game of matching. I knew where she wanted, I knew where I wanted her to be, which was like, it's kind of like sending your kid or sending your kid to preschool or sending your kid to college. You're like, okay, well, my top nursing home choice. <laughs> and then here's like our safety school if we don't get in, you know, like, <laughs> and it felt like that because like, you know, when she was in the nursing home, you'd be like, your mom did art today. And I was like, this is weird. <laughs> like, 
for nobody but me, but like, <laughs> like this is so weird. Congratulations, mom, you did art, you know, like, but it was really like competing to get into colleges or state or preschools, you know, and I know from working in a preschool that the preschool game around this neighborhood is heated. So like, same at the end of your life, <laughs> it is heated to get into these places. So on that same note, is is it merit based? Like what is the competition based on beyond just like a number on the list? It's a number on the list and income, what you can afford. Um, okay. I had to do a lot of like putting all of her money into one account to make a bigger number. So, and it was also, I was paying for a house. I was still paying for my apartment. I mean, like the money just goes, like you just, I wasn't living on the street where she like had her house. I wasn't living there. I was going there to like clean it out, but I was still paying for it. Mm-hmm. Plus like to keep lights on, plus to keep all these utilities going. Then I was paying for my apartment and I was paying for her nursing home. So whatever money she had tapped out within the first like four months. And I was like, don't know what I'm going to do. And they're like, you still owe us money. And I was like, would love to pay you, but I digress. Anyway, to get into these places is income-based. It's, you know, what you're willing to do, what you're willing to give up. And I was like, you need to be comfortable. Let's give everything up. Yeah, that, that's fascinating to me. I And maybe this is outdated information. Again, having only watched my mom, well, both of my parents go through this with their parents, like, 10 to 15 years ago. But I remember my grandfather saying things like, we need to get rid of all of our money before we get to the nursing home. And I never quite understood what that was about either. Like, do you? Medicaid. So Medicaid, if you want to get free healthcare, free nurse, not free, but like discounted healthcare, discounted nursing homes, you can spend your money down and get get, get stay for free. Cause then the government will pay if you are completely easier at zero in many ways, it's not fraudulent behavior. And actually people encourage you to do that, but in many ways, it's just a waste of then your resources <laughs> or you could be advocating for better care. And so that to me just felt like a red flag. I'm like, yeah, we could spend all of our money. We could move it around. So nobody knows where it is. But at the end of the day, she's still going to like, they're still going to come after me because I'm her next, I'm the person that is in charge of her estate. So they're still going to be like, well, where's your money? Well, I don't have any. (laughs) That's not for me. Mm -hmm. Like, so there was just a lot of, there's a lot of ways around it. And you're, you know, you said you kind of hit the nail on the head. You like this idea of like, oh, there's going to be somebody here to guide you through all this like stuff. The only time they guide you is when you're about to die. Like when you're on hospice, then they give you a social worker. And I'm like, but where were you when I like left the hospital and you were like, you have three weeks to make a decision about somebody's life. Are are there people who do that privately? Me, me. (laughs) other people who have been through it, you know, like part of what I hope to grow and part of what just is like, has been, has weighed heavily on me is watching other people have to make decisions And they're like, we just need somebody's feedback. And I was like, I'm happy to give feedback. I've been through this. We put her in a nursing home. She did well. She was doing great even. 
she had some things she was still figuring out. We thought, and with all earnest, like we were like ready. She was like, oh, she could live in one of these cheaper sort of like assisted living situations. And she was assessed and she did okay. But then they assessed her, her memory and they were like, Ariana, your mom can't live by herself anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was like, tell me how in three weeks she went from being an independent homeowner to the memory care unit of, of the nursing home close by. How did that happen? And that drastic change and whiplash almost like speed just like hits you. And you're like, this is real now. Like this isn't, this isn't a doctor appointment that you just have to go to. This is reality that you have to sit with and grieve that loss. And really it's about those steps. I can't tell if this is a relevant question, but it's a personal one, I guess, because I knew your mom. It feels silly even asking it, but I will say as somebody who probably also, if asked, would have noticed like, oh, Aurora's not quite herself, you know, but when you're dealing with somebody who's like a known firecracker and they have like a kind of weird conversation or an irritable moment or something, it's also kind of like easy to kind of brush off and say like, oh, she's just having a weird day or whatever. Uh, She's just pissed at, you know, whatever happened in her life today. And I, it's fine. Like, we'll just kind of move forward. But Personally, I would say that I started to notice a change in her demeanor around the time that Teddy died, her dog. And I wonder if you know anything or like have learned since, like, is that common that like the loss of a pet might start to change or show, you know, like it breaks up the routine enough that all of a sudden you need like additional help? What what do you know about that anything it's sort of like our own bodies right like anything can trigger anything but I think loss triggers everything you know like loss trigger like lights up your whole central nervous system and I think that that is what 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 she was experiencing and that's 2016 so that puts me puts me right there right so like she did everything for that dog to keep it alive Teddy was a great dog We miss him. She begged. She was like, please, let's get another dog. And I was like, no, (laughs) you know, but who am I? Like, I live there. So, you know, like as long as, and, and she wasn't, she was enough. Okay. To be like a dog will help. Mm. And I, it did. I think Rocco was the replacement dog, but you know, he was definitely a helpful, helpful guy. And he was so sweet, you know, and he was, he didn't, he didn't hurt her. He was like very, he understood uh, right away that he was sort of a, a, a de facto service dog. And I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think 2016 was a changing year for her because it really showed that what loss does to a person in a very real way. And there's actually something called broken heart syndrome which is kind of <laughs> has a nice name, but like gives you all the uh, side effects of a heart attack or loss in your body. And something that I learned about personally, because I was like, am I next? Like right away? <laughs> like, 
how does this work? And the first three to six months of grief, you learn that your body just is not used to loss. And she was grieving so hard for this dog. And I just knew that life would not be the same. I knew for her, her purpose, and as so many mothers, your purpose is your child or children. Mm-hmm. And I was a grown up. So Teddy sort of like took on this role of having, you know, he was, he had, she, he was her purpose. And when that sort of like went away, it was, it was hard for her. It was hard for her to like see a life beyond what she had. But, you know, there's a lot of beauty sort of surrounding the love that she had for that, for Teddy and for me. And oftentimes, you know, I would take her to a doctor's appointment and we would sit down in center city somewhere. And I would say, so like, we're still in this, right? Because we always had an agreement. It would be me until it couldn't be me anymore. I was like, you can age in place. It's not safe. It's not ideal. But I know that's what you want. So you can age in place until I can't keep, I can't keep it up anymore. And sure enough, she was like, yep, I'm okay. Ariana, I wash the dishes. And like things that were like important to her. Like I still dress, I still dress myself every day. I still take a shower. I still like do my own laundry. And she did literally up until like the day before she went, had a heart attack. Like she was doing all of these things. And she always would say, it's not like I'm walking outside and like don't have clothes on. And I was like, that's not the only sign, but we'll let you have it. (laughs) Like, she's like, you know, the neighbors would talk. I'm like, they do. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just about that. (laughs) Like, Oh, I, I love that that's her comeback because Aurora was the first neighbor to talk. <laughs> and that's what we loved about her. And yeah, so she, that makes a lot of sense though. And I'm, I mean, that, that resonates that those were her kind of like markers in her head of, you know, like what does decline look like? I think a lot of us can imagine our parents saying those same things and and us having to kind of hold their hand and, and gently explain like that's that's like baseline like we need to like bring it up a little bit more above baseline I want you to have a richer end of life than just not walking outside naked like yeah I I don't know I feel like there's so many directions I want to take this conversation but I'm, I'm wondering if we can kind of shift just for a minute how you're gonna you're going to shoot me a look. I know. it. How did you manage to take care of yourself? Slash. <laughs> there it was. <laughs> slash. Um, <laughs> if that didn't happen in the moment, because I know, you know, when you're kind of in the middle of something, you don't always have the space for that. How have you been able to process that in the seven months since the passing? Are, where, where are you now? And where what can you kind of pass on to other people who are facing this that you would want for them? Um, I didn't take care of myself. Mm. I didn't. Um, I don't like regret not doing that, but it was, it was really hard to just like take a moment and be like all of the stuff that's going on. I mean, like I would visit every day to the nursing home. I would 
go to go back to the street and like clean out the house. I was doing all of these things in the last year and then it was all done. So like the house was sold. We cleaned up a lot of this other like little tiny things. All of that's taken care of. And the only thing that was left was still visiting my mom and everything was a challenge, you know, like everything. And I was still working because like it, independent wealth does not come from a parent dying <laughs> in case anyone's confused. Um, and I was still managing my own schedule and managing my own social life and managing my own like friendships and relationships and like dealing with all of those little like still very much youthful and vibrant uh, things that I get to do at the same time I had this like heavy, heavy, heavy moment of like all these people that I'm sitting with at this table don't know what it's like to hold someone's own life in the palm of their hands that's just about to slip away. So that heavy sort of like how do I, how do I relate to the world again? Because everybody else still has parents. So, I mean, I still have a dad. Let's, let's be realistic. I still have a parent, <laughs> but it was so hard to sort of like know that your loved one, every single time you sit down somewhere, you could get a phone call you're just, you're in constant flux. The only thing I could manage to do for myself was to drink a ton of coffee and take the time to just, you know, I live close to the woods. So it's oftentimes I would just like have to go walk. And when she died, all of that time that I had spent with her left me too because I was like I am not sure that I'm going to survive and I remember I was it was a couple days maybe like a week before her services and I had a terrible panic attack and I was convinced that I had to go to the ER convinced I mean I like said I was going to the ER and my friend is a trauma nurse in New Orleans and I texted her, I said, hey, do you have a minute for me? And she said, sure. And she said, uh, I said, here's here's what's happening. And she was like, Ariana, your mom just died. And I said, yeah, and? and she was like, her services are next week, right? And I said, yeah, and? And she said, take a deep breath <laughs> with me on the phone right now. And I did it. And I was fine for that night. I just was up all hours. Um, and I wound up going to like urgent care the next night and they gave me some like spicy Benadryl and sent me on my way. And really it was just to like, keep breathing because everything that I like do did for so long was just about taking care of my mom. So your identity is sort of like, you lose it immediately. Like, well, who am I now? Like, what do I do next? And so seven months out, I, I went to a doctor for the first time, <laughs> you know, like I had to like make some changes because what grief does to you 
is it inflames your whole body pretty much. Your central nervous system is completely out of line. And that includes like thyroid and that includes like your brain and your whole thing. Um, And your heart, like everything is just all connected and you don't find out until it's all like that. It is all connected until you're there. Like, Hey, here's what's wrong with you. (laughs) It's all connected. And I'm like, Oh, okay. That makes it easy. So I think that there in the last seven months, I've learned so much about the caregiver body and how, how you really have to tread so lightly going into this next chapter of advocacy work of making sure people know what's going on with you. And really it's about opening your boundaries to some people and being like, Hey, I'm still grieving. Don't say those things. Or, Hey, this is where I need to be right now. Please honor that. And that also comes with like grief counseling. Like I've been in grief counseling for seven months, which like, there's a lot of really terrible things about hospice. I've never had to fire so many nurses <laughs> for like not taking care of my mom the appropriate way. But grief counseling through hospice, top notch. 10 out of 10 would recommend. I don't know if it's standard. I think it's standard for with most, most hospice care organizations. They send like a social worker to their house. But I have never looked forward to talking to somebody like I like I loved my therapist when I was going to active therapy but I really love like love grief counseling because it talks about we just talk about our sadness and I feel like that not many people do that (laughs) and I've learned more about grief and loss through my own story and sharing it with people than I have about anything just to clarify, when you say grief counseling, that is one-on-one or in a group setting? One-on-one, one-on-one grief counseling. Um, I have a Zoom appointment or a FaceTime appointment uh, with my grief counselor every month. And they are from the hospice program my mom was a part of. And you know they do community bereavement too. So like you can go and like be in group settings. That's not, I'm not doing that. Um, but talking about, you know, like specifically your loved one and like your next steps and something that, you know, I always sort of have to remember is like, you're not supposed to be okay right now. Mm. And that's okay. You know, like there is something very special about being a caregiver. There is the hardest job but you, you're not supposed to be okay after your like loved one dies. And I think that there's like a rumor, you know, going around that you're supposed to be like bright eyed and bushy tailed after the, well, you're fine now, right? She's better. She's in a better place. Like, no, the better place would be like chilling in the next room, but okay. <laughs> you know, like, so having people constantly sort of like downplay death as it's, you know, this like better place situation it's not about where that person is but it's really about the moment and like what and how you're feeling about all of that Mm -hmm. and it is it's extremely complicated and every situation is so very different 
And some people need the space and time to grieve openly. Some people need space and time to grieve privately. And some people need a chance to disconnect. And I've sort of allowed myself to start reconnecting after a period of disconnect. You know, it still feels like I'm putting on new skin when I have to go do something every, every time I'm like brand new here. Never been, I've never been outside of my house, <laughs> but you're, you know, every situation is learning to walk again. One more logistical question. Who pays for grief counseling? Is that out of pocket on your part? Mm-mm. So because my mom went through, through hospice, she was part of Penn hospice. Penn has part of your part of like her Medicare package is hospice, but then also for a year, they pay for me to go to grief counseling. Okay. Yeah. I asked because now we're outside of the window, but you, everything you just said, just turned on so many light bulbs for me. And I don't, I don't know if my mom listens to my podcast. I'm guessing not, uh, but if I can share, mom, if you're listening, I know <laughs> I've watched so much of what you just, what you just described through my mom's processing of my dad's death. And I think, I guess I've always known that like, I process, I grieve differently. I process death differently than what seems is expected of me. And I'm a lot more private. And so it is, I feel like a robot sometimes when, when I see people having big feels on the outside Um, and I, I'm like, it doesn't compute. I don't know how to like, what to do with that. So much of what you just described, like clicked for me that like identity, like you're not just grieving the person you're grieving your own loss of identity. And if your identity in that relationship is primary caregiver, and if your identity in most of your relationships has been primary caregiver, which both were true for my mom because she went from raising children to caring for her own parents and then caring for my dad, um, who did not, without sharing all of his business, who did not go through a lengthy hospice process, but still needed a lot of care just as a functioning person. Um, And so, so much of her identity was wrapped up in that. And it hadn't occurred to me how much of an identity shift that created in her life. Um, and it hadn't occurred to me, you know, I, I probably logically could have said like, oh yeah, mom's still sick because she is still grieving. And, and, you know, once she perks up again, it'll all shake itself out. But it hadn't occurred to me that like, that doesn't even need to enter the conversation. Like whether or not she perks up again, isn't actually the point of the conversation. It hadn't occurred to me how much the community, families, friends need to just acknowledge that identity shift in the same way that like so many of us are also grieving who we were pre-pandemic, right? Like so many of us have had major life shifts. Also, I have a podcast about midlife plot twists. Like we're all used to this, right? These like huge identity shifts and having to wrap your head around the fact that like grief also brings that out. And maybe, maybe it's time to meet the new person in front of you and not just keep trying to like operate as if 
well, they're just going to snap out of it one day and be their old self. Like I had never considered that. So thank you for that. How did you even come to understand that? It was, you know, I will say this about the internet. It's, it's a magical place, (laughs) but I, I will also say that it's a really good place to grieve. Um, and I mean that because there's so many people that are like writing really good things about identity And like, I think identity is such a topic now, you know, like everyone's identifying differently. I'm identifying as grieving. (laughs) Like, And I think that also it just, you know, my grief counselor said to me, Ariana, sometimes you just have to play the grief card. And I was like, I need a handful of those cards in my purse at all times grieving. But he's right. There's a lot of things that I just need to be like, hey, you know what? I can't do this anymore. So I am Greek in case you didn't tell by my last name and our Easter is next week. And I am in a church community that takes Easter very, the Greek Orthodox religion takes Easter very seriously. It's like our new year. Um, And it's a time for reflection. It's a time for community. It's a time for family. My dad, and if I send this to him and he listens, hello. Um, But my dad married somebody who's not Greek also again, my mom's not Greek. And it's constantly playing this role of like, hey, if I cook for Greek Easter, will you come over? And I'm like, absolutely not. And here's the thing. It's really not about them. It's about me. And there are days when I'd rather just be alone eating a bowl full of potatoes than go sit around a table and have people talk to me as if I'm normal and things are not what they are. Mm-hmm. Like, scream into the void. I know my mom's not here, but I would like to acknowledge her presence. And in some situations, safety in who you are and where you are in your life, you need to feel safe. And like in those, in some big dinner situations, I don't feel safe. And you really, like you said, you have to meet this person in front of you. One day I will feel regular again. that's not this week. And I, you know, was never a big like church goer prior. And I'm not here to like preach the word of Jesus. But I will say (laughs) that like being a part of a church community has helped immensely just learn how to take these baby steps again, with people who are just comforting because that's literally written into our Greek doctrine. Like they just, that's who they are. And it's nice to be around strong um, maternal figures because I don't have one right now. And I, I I just, I don't, you know, like that strong maternal like person I had is no longer there. So I need to be around people who are, who bring that energy. And I need a lot of strong, strong Greek lady energy going into holiday seasons, going into new situations where I just need to like bounce. And I, you know, like I need, I need help, you know, like silly things, you know, like what to wear. <laughs> like, and I remember early on in my mom's like sort of transition to a nursing home, I had to go to a funeral for a friend's mom. And it was in a funeral home. Now, because I get to be Greek and because I get to like be around a lot of like religious situations, the only way I know how to dress for a funeral is very formal. 
and like in all black. But it's like a Tuesday night in a funeral home. And I'm like, what do I wear? So I called my uncle, who obviously, if you know anything about my family, height of fashion. I'm just kidding. But (laughs) (laughs) I was like, weird question. And this is like, and I said, I was like, you get this question because I can't talk to my mom. What do I wear to a funeral home? (laughs) It's like, are you kidding right now? And I was like, no, I'm serious. (laughs) Very serious. And I was like. And and really, it's about like making decisions, you know, like I just couldn't make one more decision. So like decision fatigue was real. And could I have figured out what to wear? Absolutely. But it was in that moment that I was like, I just I need somebody else to tell me and support this decision that I'm dealing with. And we we laughed about it, you know, and months later, he was like, do you still need my help from your fashion choices? I was like, I will always need help. (laughs) Always. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. I want to talk about, because I know, you know, coming on the hour, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody, which is, if you could go back to younger Ariana and tell her something helpful, and you can choose like which version of younger Ariana we're, we're speaking to, what do you wish that you could go back and let her know? Oh, so when you sent me that question, I was like probably in public and about to like break down into tears because I was like, what would I tell myself? <laughs> um, I think I would tell any version of like 18 to 27, just like, it's okay to talk about things. You know, it's okay to like, even if your mom says she needs privacy, you know what's better for her. Hmm. Also, like if you could... I guess I would tell my younger self, like, it's going to be all right. It's just going to suck for a long, long time. And then it will get better. Yeah, that resonates. Let me clarify, though. It's okay to talk about things. That struck a nerve with me when you said it. Um, What do you, do you wish that you had gotten more off your chest or done more digging to, like, know the other person? I would say I would rather just have like gone against the grain and been like, you know, there's, there's a leadership compass that I don't know if everyone knows about, but like it sort of puts you on the map of like where you are as a leader. And in so many of these situations, I'm a North, which basically means I don't care about any of those details. I'm just going to keep it going. Um, And I just wish that I had northed a lot of these decisions and just been like, we're going to the doctor. I don't care what you say. I've made the appointment. Let's go. Because I knew, I knew that like more testing could have been done, but she was, you know, because you can get PET scans, you can get all these things to test for memory loss. Would they have come up inconclusive? I don't know the answer to that. And lots of, lots of things you don't like you won't be able to like see. Um, but I also wished I had pushed for it. I wished I had pushed for more the opportunity to have those discussions with her, but also with her, with medical professionals, because maybe there would have been more resources, but if you're going through any of this, just like in large groups of people, don't be afraid to be like memory loss is real. Let's have the discussion because honestly it starts now. Like brain health starts 
in your 40s, it starts probably prior. But like for women, brain health starts like right as soon as you start menstruating. Mm -hmm. And we do not, that's the last thing we take care of. We're like, let's eat blueberries. I'm like, well, that's part of it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Yes, yes. And there are other things that we do as we're not designed to multitask. We're not designed to stress these stress, get, have all that stress on us. So in order to sort of alleviate all of that, um, just, you know, we, we, as a community, as a world, as Americans, we don't really look into that. We don't look into the brain health aspect of it because it's not dementia is maybe not preventable, but it is avoidable for a while. You can, you can, there are ways to get around it. It, it sounds like one of the things you're trying to say is like, we need to push back against capitalism <laughs> and actually take care of our bodies and minds. So many of us are just kind of go through life, assuming that like high stress levels are the only way to operate. Um, and therefore we just keep pushing through. And, you know, if you want longevity, that's not very sustainable. But then the other thing I'm hearing you say is maybe I'm going to say it as if I was in your shoes. If I had been in your shoes, I probably would have kind of tamped down my instincts to dig deeper and push harder because, you know, well, that's my elder. They have their own independent life. I would have, I would have just like had that whole script in my head. Like that's not really your place. And I think a lot of people would do that too. But what I'm hearing is a conversation before you even get to that point with your loved ones to say, when it comes to this point in, in your care, me uh, pushing harder and pushing back is not going to be um, out of disrespect. In fact, it's probably not even going to be like about you at all. It's actually like self-advocacy as well as advocating for your rights and your, your more testing or whatever. Uh, if I guess what I want to say is like, there needs to be more conversations before you get to the caregiver role about at some point, mom, you're going to be gone and I will have, I will be stuck with my brain (laughs) and my memories of how I cared for you during that time. And Right now, like me pushing back isn't about my lack of respect for you. It's about kind of answering to future me, knowing that I could have done more. I need to know that I, that I did as much as I could. Um, And I feel like that is, that's very easy to say while we're sitting here on a podcast, but like a lot of us need to have those conversations with the people that are closest to us, whether that's our parents, grandparents, other extended family, best friends. I mean, a lot of us are kind of leaning into this chosen family life where we're forming our own little communities. And uh, we have to have those conversations too about, you know, like, if you really want me to be a ride or die, then you have to let me ride. Yeah. And I also think that there's a lot of like, Again, there's a lot of intellectualizing these things, which I think a lot of us try to do. But in reality, we have to like actually apply what we've learned to the, the conversations that we're having. So it is, it is easy to say, 
this isn't about disrespect. Like this is about, I just want you to be well. And I will say very, like, honestly, I had those check-ins with my mom. Again, it was, I'm doing it until I can't, until the wheels fall off. I will be here. Wheels fell off. (laughs) They were like off. Um, And I think that that really makes you wake up and sort of start to see like, oh, how am I reacting to all of these changes? And I think what's so beautiful about being in this age in which we are is that we have enough hindsight that, you know, of our own lived experience. But in addition to that, we have all of somebody else's lived experience too, sort of informing all of those decisions. So last generation to like really understand like respecting elders, what that looks like, not to say that these young kids don't, but (laughs) what I mean is kind of being preached all of the, you know, like somebody was always like, respect those. So like I went to a Catholic school every day of my life was respect your elders day. So like, I understand that like, yes, we have to, you know, have these sort of like really hard conversations. The thing is that nobody's having them. And I think because there's a lot of uncomfortable feeling about being like letting somebody down. And I will tell you right now, as somebody who was a caregiver for a really long time, I will say the first compliment that my family gave me was, it's not like you didn't try everything. (laughs) And I was like, did anyone else hear that? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> like, but because I tried everything. I was like, okay, diet switch, high protein, let's go. A1C, I can handle diabetes, memory loss, and aging from a distance, from close up. I can do everything. I can manage. And I did so expertly. But then the wheels fell off. And I was like, listen, there comes a point where you have to be like, it, it I'm, it's out of my bandwidth. Like I'm not, I have, was not, I wasn't even trained to life that do that life, but I'm definitely not trained for that. So like know your boundaries, understand that sometimes it's just too much. And also like go to therapy <laughs> like and, and drink a lot of water, stay hydrated. <laughs> There's a lot of beauty in this disease. There's a lot of tragedy. You are constantly grieving change. And you are constantly going to grieve the loved one that you thought you knew. And then suddenly things switched on you. But there are people out there that are willing to talk about everything and anything. And I'm one of those people. There's an online, there's a whole online like community of caregivers that are so nice. And all we do is support each other. And my like, you know, perfect dream world, everybody would have, you know, like you said in the beginning, like when you start noticing things, like what kind of feedback can you give me about this? And like, is it too soon to move them to, to a community, like a caregiving community? And in so many ways, you know, I wish I had moved my mom sooner. I think it would, it would have, you know, calmed the crazy down, but also it would have like given her a different purpose than, you know, screaming at truck drivers. <laughs> I think that very niche Devon Street joke. But, <laughs> um, but I do think that like giving giving a giving your loved ones purpose just creates so much more opportunity to see them have a better quality of life and to see them thrive in their in their later years. 
but always just, you know, knowing that you did everything you could with the information that you had at the time. Yeah. Um, Ariana, thank you so much for this conversation. I mean, you and I have had a couple of these in passing, you know, over the past few years, just in one way or another, but this was so rich and so informative. So I really appreciate that. How can people continue to follow the work that you're doing or any other resources that you think might be helpful? Sure. So I have an Instagram page called at just beyond boundaries. Um, and I also, you know, like I talk a little bit more about grief there. I don't really do any, like, I think that there's some like lives planned. I'm not so good at the, <laughs> at that part of it, but I do post a lot of content, like other people's content and I give credit where credit's due. I'm very much open about my grief journey, uh, where I am that day. You know, there are days when I just like find some, you know, poem so beautiful and I'm not a poetry gal, but you know, there, there's something, there's some things that people send me and it just, it like, it really does like kind of lift me up, but also I'm, you know, I'm around there and just around to talk. If anyone needs any support or any like resources that I have, I'm happy to share them. It's a whole other education that you get just by caring for somebody that you love so much. Absolutely. Like I said, thank you again. There is one more thing that I need to do at the end of this episode that is unrelated to our lovely conversation. So I am going to read from a script right now, which is not my usual thing, but there's this cool new thing called buy me a coffee, which is basically just a way for listeners to continue to support this podcast or whatever other projects you might be following. So here's the script. If today's episode has resonated with you or helped you in any way, and you'd like to support the show so we can continue to bring you new and free content, I've set up an account on Buy Me a Coffee. You can support the podcast uh, through the donation-based tool. Uh, the monetary donations are in increments of $5, so super affordable. And you can head over to my new page, buymeacoffee.com slash Lucy Baber. Thank you for your support. And thank you again, Ariana. I love coffee. So buy Lucy all the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you, friends. And uh, stay tuned next month for another episode. Thanks for listening to Midlife Plot Twists. Be sure to hit subscribe and check back monthly for each new episode. Since monthly podcasts don't automatically download, you can also follow me on Instagram at Lucy Baber and Facebook at Lucy Baber Photography to be the first to know when each new episode is released.